Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Tomorrowland, the new Disney movie from the director Brad Bird. And joining me in the Slate studio is Forrest Wickman. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Dana. Uh, you are a Slate senior editor and writer mm-hmm. and uh, a Brad Bird fan, I gather. Oh, for sure. And, uh, Who isn't, really? Yeah, well, I guess well. <laughs> we'll get into it. He's 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 uh, accruing detractors. I think I'm trying to write about him right now and finding him like enormously talented and enormously challenging. And I think that you like this movie better than I did. But we will see. We'll get into it. And before we get started, you should know if it isn't obvious from the title of this podcast that this is all about spoilage. We're going to get into everything that happens in the movie, who lives, who dies, what blows up, what doesn't. So if you don't want to know any of that stuff, wait and listen after you've seen Tomorrowland. All right, so Tomorrowland, just to set it up, is Brad Bird's second live-action film mm-hmm. after Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Probably the best ago. Mission Impossible movie. Um, but so, so Brad Bird basically has been on a, a, a role his entire career, right? Mm-hmm. He hasn't made many movies, but he's worked as an animator with Pixar, with Disney, with The Simpsons, with King of the Hill, lots of shows. And every animated movie he's made essentially has become a classic, right? Yep. Ratatouille, The Incredibles, the, and The Iron, Iron Giant. Giant. Yeah. Um, and so here he is moving into, it's not animation, but it's a Disney movie that is, um, how would you describe it? I sort of feel like it's it's a Disney movie that is also all about Disney. It's almost a deconstruction of the spirit of Disney. Right. And it's a very interesting project for him to take on. To me, it was a failed project, but I'm excited to talk to you about it and the stuff that did work and didn't work. So where do we begin? First of all, this is a really hard movie to reconstruct story-wise because it has a lot of overlapping time frames and we're not quite sure how they intersect or who's moving from which time frame to the next when, right? So um, so that might take some some doing, trying to reconstruct that. And, uh, and also, I think that this movie is just straight up legit confusing. Like there are a lot of things in it that I don't think make sense. And I'm wondering if you can make them make sense to me. It's definitely very narratively complex. And in... And- in a lot of ways, like this movie is a family movie. It's rated PG, but it reminds me more of, I don't know if this mo- kind of movie actually exists or it's just like a mythical thing we all like to talk about, but like a PG movie that everyone could actually enjoy where like it is kind of violent. There is legitimate suspense and like actual blood in it. And and deaths, right? I mean, there's quite a few collateral damage yeah. deaths during the fight scenes, right. which is quite unusual. It for does Disney. not like take, you know, kid gloves to, to its viewers. It does not make everything too soft and cuddly. Which is one thing I really liked about it. And and something that's very hard to decide about it, and we'll have to get to spoiling the end before we can really get into this, is is whether it's utopic or dystopic, right? Both about the future, the environment, all the all the sort of world politics that it purports to be about, and also just about sort of Disney movie making itself, mm-hmm. right? Because it is sort of about optimism and shininess and how those things get um, rusted and decayed as you get older and uh, and sort of how and whether it's possible to save that optimism. So we begin with this frame story that I'm still trying to figure out or frame, you know, setup um, mm-hmm. in which there, we seem to be in some sort of, it looks pretty dystopic. It seems to be like an underground bunker of some kind. And there's this big digital clock counting down towards some unnamed event Right. And uh, and then there's a kind of a homemade feel as if George Clooney and the girl that he's in the room with. Can you give me the actress's name? Oh, plays yeah. Casey? Yeah. Um, her name is Britt Robertson. And Britt she is Robertson. basically a newcomer. So so we don't know at first what the relationship between these two people is, George Clooney and uh, the, the Britt Robertson character whose name is Casey. We just know that they're together in this bunker like place arguing about who should tell the story to frame what, how they got to the place they are. Yeah, I mean, so uh, to be clear, I think they're not they're they're not in at the beginning in the kind of bunker that is the George Clooney character's house. That's um, that's something we meet later. I guess you're right that there is the clock there. But what I think what it's revealed to be is that actually they're like in Tomorrowland recruiting. The the point at the beginning to me seems to be like 
a clock is counting down, something bad is going to happen, and we have to keep it from happening. Right. right? And then you get these kind of two uh, conflicting uh, narratives, and and they kind of represent the conflicting worldviews of the George Clooney character, uh, Frank Walker, and the Britt Robertson character. And basically, like, it starts with um, the George Clooney character telling uh, how he ended up there. And he's more cynical. And he talks about how we used to believe that the future would be great, and we don't believe that anymore. And um, then we go to him as a little kid, and he's kind of this young inventor who's building jetpacks, which yes, is kind of... this is one of my favorite parts of the movie, actually. Yeah. And it makes me sad that it gets cut so short. I feel like this is an aborted possibility of where this movie could have gone, is that we flash back to the 1964 World's Fair in Queens. The art direction is great. I don't know if it's a real re- reproduction of what the World's Fair looked like, but it's it's this sort of you know beautiful 1964 fantasy land, utopian imagination of the future. And we see young Frank Walker, played by a kid actor who I thought was great. Thomas Robinson is his name. And... Uh, and I was excited that he was going to be the young George Clooney. He sort of looked right. like a young he George Clooney. Like yeah. He had a lot of a, you know, um, verve. And he goes to this sort of inventing contest at the fair. It's never mm-hmm. quite defined what it is, but it's sort of like a contest for young designers of some kind. And he has home engineered this jetpack, right? A very 60s idea of what the future would be. And uh, and the jetpack only works in the sense that it blasts him forward on the ground as far as, as it can, but, um, but it's never yet taken off. So he doesn't win this contest and is very mistreated by the judge of the contest, played by Hugh Laurie. Right. Who, who it's, I think it's kind of thematically important that the Hugh Laurie character's criticism is basically that jetpacks aren't useful, but then this little kid gives this kind of great defense that actually they are useful because they would increase our our belief in what is possible, and like that is useful. Um, right. And he gives the same kind of he voices the same kind of affirmation of the future and hope that we're going to hear Casey doing a generation later. Mm-hmm. Right. For, for um, the next scene. But this this part of the movie is pretty short, actually. And, and a lot is going on that we need to understand for later. So in at the World's Fair, he's rejected by Hugh Laurie. But standing behind Hugh Laurie is this young British girl who we're not clear, is this Hugh Laurie's daughter? What's her relationship right. to him? She seems to be at first, I think. Right. She's sort of set up as being. But she, anyway, she's some in some way allied with him because we see her walking around with him and, and some others later on. But she takes a liking to this young Frank Walker with the failed jetpack, uh, follows him out of the contest area onto the fairgrounds. And does she give him the magic pin at that point? How does she bring him into the Tomorrowland world. Yeah, I don't remember if she gives him the pin or not, but for sure she tells him to follow. And and he gets on um, the It's a Small World ride, which was at that World Fair. And I it's love from the recreation there, of the Small World ride. Yeah. It's great. And it's from there that he kind of like launches off into Tomorrowland. And right. There's almost like first. a lock, almost like in the Panama Canal. There's sort of a secret lock inside the, the Small World ride that drops you down into this subterranean world in which we see Tomorrowland. So now let's try to describe what Tomorrowland is at the beginning. Oh, man. I think you would be better at this than I am. It's a kind of, it's a just like a hodgepodge of different futuristic architectures. Right. It's sort of, Um, yeah, it's like a a utopia imagined from different, I mean, Brad Bird has talked about this in the design of the film, from different eras, like what was the 30s idea of utopia? What was the 20s idea of utopia? Sort of an idea that this city had grown up over time, right, with a series of, of different architectural styles. But it's this, it's almost sort of like a, a Disney castle. In fact, the Disney yeah. castle logo at the beginning of this movie is designed to look like Tomorrowland. Um, but 
but more futuristic, more sparkling, and sort of seems to be a kind of social and political utopia as well, in that there are right. a lot of, you know, healthy, shiny, diverse people zooming around in jetpacks and diving into these really great uh, suspended pools, swimming pools. Yeah, that was one of my favorite details, although there are so many just wonderfully imagined, like, little design ideas that go into this movie. That's just one of them. But, I, yeah, the swimming pools that you dive through are great. We don't, we don't really explore exactly how Tomorrowland works or who runs it. We just sort of see it, wonder at it for a moment. And, uh, and then do we ever find out what happens at the end of that encounter? Well, we find out later. Um, I mean, I think what happens there is that the Casey character kind of interrupts and, and then so that she can kind of start telling her part of the yeah, story. Yeah, you're right. That story just gets interrupted. That's right. Yeah. There's a, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of breaking the fourth wall structure to this whole thing. So, yeah, we should talk about Casey, who uh, similarly is kind of a young dreamer, and she's trying to stop. Well, she's in, in our present day, more or less, right? right? And she lives in... Florida near Cape Canaveral, Cape, yeah. right? Her father is a NASA engineer who's about to lose his job because Cape Canaveral is about to be shut down. Played by Tim McGraw. But yes, Tim McGraw plays her dad very well, I think. But he, like a lot of the, the actors in this, doesn't really get much of a chance to show his stuff. And uh, and she is engaged in these almost nightly acts of sort of um, space terrorism yeah. where she she breaks onto the Cape Canaveral grounds and tries to what is she trying to do exactly She's basically yeah she's sabotaging their project which is to dismantle I think the launch pad so she just hates that NASA has given up on space travel and wants them to not give up So as a result of Casey's tinkerings with the Cape Canaveral platform which her dad finds out about and is furious about she has to go to jail for either overnight or a few hours it's not clear um, her dad posts bail, and as she's leaving the jail and gathering up her personal effects, she finds among her personal effects this pin. This is something we mentioned earlier that looks almost like something you would get in Girl Scouts or, you know, Campfire Girls or something, like a little thing that you can pin to your jacket with a big T on it. It's a Tomorrowland pin. Which we should, yeah, which we should say is pretty much identical to the actual logo of Tomorrowland at um, Disney World. Oh, Tomorrowland is a real place in Disney World? It is. I am not. We have many Disney World experts on staff, and I am not one of them. But I believe it is, it's basically one of the areas. Yeah. Unrelated to this movie, there just is a place called that that's about the future. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the initial idea was, oh, is this movie based on that place in the same way that like Pirates of the Caribbean uh, was based on that ride? And... What it actually is based more on, I think, is Walt Disney's actual utopian city that he tried to build and then died before he could right. finish it, um, but which was called the Experimental Prototype City of Tomorrow and became Epcot, E-P-C-O-T. At any rate, when Casey gets a hold of this pin, literally gets a hold of it, like the minute her fingers touch it, she's kind of either psychically or metaphysically, we don't quite know how, but she's transported to another place. It's not mine. What's not yours? The pen. I've never... No way. Uh, a big sort of wheat field in which in the distance you can see the sparkling towers of t- Tomorrowland. And it seems that all this is happening while she's still in the police station, right? Because she ends up bumping into a wall as she's trying to walk toward Tomorrowland. Um, but she sort of discovers, okay, I for some reason have this strange magical pen that when I hold it transports me to this other place. What does it mean? upset with you. I get it. You're angry. I, I understand, but have you, you ever seen this before? Does it look weird? Don't touch it! Why are you yelling at me? Not while you're driving, Dad. It's dangerous. Just pull over. Okay. I swear to God, Case, if you're on drugs... I, I'm not on drugs. All will be explained. 
As soon as you touch this pen. What is... It's not working? Um, so, she becomes obsessed with this pin, trying to figure out the origin of it, Googling it online, discovers that a, a store in Houston, a kind of like vintage mm-hmm. toy store, has another version of this pin, um, then proceeds to road trip to Houston. Another thing that's funny about this character and this movie is that it's never clear how old Casey is. Is she a high schooler? Is she in school? Yeah. Does I, her dad well, care? So she just takes off her days? school. We see her very cynical teacher's who have all, like, given up on fighting global warming. Oh, yeah, that's right. We do see some high school scenes. Okay, but, so she's a, yeah. she's a high schooler who somehow also has the freedom to just hop on a hop in a car and drive to Houston. She's got guts. And, uh, and there in Houston, this to me was another very, very disappointing could-have-been moment in the movie. She goes into this crazy vintage store called Blast from the Past, staffed by a married couple played by Katherine Hahn and Keegan-Michael Key. I can't believe you were disappointed by the sequence. It was such a great sequence. Well, since we're spoiling, I was disappointed by this sequence because they die at the end of it and they're not characters in the right. movie anymore. To me, it felt like, oh, here's this abundance of interesting actors and interesting roles and let's either kill them off or cut away from their stories really quickly so we never get to know them. I just felt this kind of, who's my protagonist, you know? I want a protagonist that I can stick with. And I guess to the extent there is one, it's Casey, but she's kind of a boring protagonist. Well, it's, it's I think Casey is the most boring of the kind of three protagonists who are her. George Clooney, who's not boring because he's George Clooney, and the Athena character, who I think is really great. I mean, she's it's just a really weird character that she's like this little girl. She's a robot, but we really care about her. We find out soon that she's a robot, um, actually, during this sequence. Yeah, um, no, that's true. That's true. I mean, it is it is kind of nice that there's two young women that take over a lot of the action scenes. But I still wanted more, more Clooney and more young kid Clooney and more Catherine Hahn and more Tim McGraw and more everyone because it's mm-hmm. a very this is a very um, skittish movie. It sort of jumps from idea to idea and time frame to time frame very quickly. Um, All right. So now let's get into the meat of the story here with Tomorrowland. Like what has happened to Tomorrowland in the interim between young George Clooney's visit in 1964 and the state that it's in when when Casey starts to learn about it? Casey breaks into uh, the George Clooney character's house where he's kind of holed out and, and given up all hope. And we find out that the reason for that is because sometime during his time at Tomorrowland, he built this device that could see into the future. It's called the Monitor. And uh, it quickly determined that the world was going to end very soon and that the probability of this was 100 percent. And so he, they kicked him out. They were mad at him, I guess, for figuring this out or something. I can't. I don't remember well, the, if the it's fact, a shoot the messenger thing the or what. The fact that they never show. Okay, this you, even you, Forrest, defender of this movie, cannot mm-hmm. defend this. The fact that we never learn how Frank Walker, George Clooney's character, is exiled from Tomorrowland is a major flaw in this movie. I mean, they say it. I, I mean, it, it's so packed with detail that I think it's easy to miss things. But I know that he gives an explanation. I think it's, I don't know, like he, he says that I, I built something that I shouldn't have. And I think that was the 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 monitor. Maybe so, but that doesn't seem like a thing that needs to be explained ex post facto. Like cinematically, it just seems like that's a moment that has to be visited. You know, the moment that you see Hugh Laurie, who we learn is sort of like the despot, right, of the fallen mm-hmm. Tomorrowland. Um, the moment that we learn that he is going to kick out Frank Walker and exile him forever is just something that we should – I feel like we should see it happen on screen or else it's not going to have any emotional resonance at all. It's just sort of told about later on. Well, I, I don't know. I, th- I loved the scene instead that we get where um, basically Frank Walker asks Casey, uh, if you could find out when you were going to die, would you want to know? And she says, 
yes, but I wouldn't accept it. And that, and so crucially, that's the moment that they see the kind of probability of uh, total extinction drop very mm-hmm. slightly. Right. And we start to get a grasp of this premise, which is a really neat idea that the fear of the future is so, so almost like an, an ominous force that can be right. that can be chased down and, and caught and killed, right? Um, there's this story that, that Tim McGraw tells his daughter and she yeah. later tells back to him about the two wolves, right? And how can we reconstruct it? It's like it's two like wolves are really fighting. It's not really a story, I have to it's say. It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, basically the idea is like one is the wolf of optimism, yeah. one is the wolf of pessimism. Which one's going to win the fight? And the answer to the riddle is whichever one you feed, right? right? right. So, so that by feeding our hope for the future, we're gonna we're gonna turn things around. By feeding our fear of the future, we are essentially guaranteeing our own doom. Right. So it's an argument for optimism as like an actual force that can have practical implications. Right. And pessimism as sort of essentially the bad guy that's being chased down, as much as Hugh Laurie is. Hugh Laurie represents it, but it's it's really the value itself that's kind of the villain, right? But now is when I'm really going to need your help, because uh-huh. I told you about this already, but during this movie, which is very rare for me in a press screening, I made the most ill-timed bathroom run of my career. It was a hot day. I've been slugging water all day. I ran out to use the bathroom, was out for maybe 10 minutes, and when I came back, I had Whoa. no idea what was going on. Uh-huh. And it had to do with the Eiffel Tower, and using the Eiffel Tower... Do you miss the back story of Tomorrowland, basically. Okay, no so, wonder I had no idea what was going on. All right, so fill me in. Yeah, yeah. So the, the backstory of Tomorrowland is that decades ago, a bunch of the kind of greatest inventors in the world wanted to create like a special place where they could all get together and invent things that would make the world a better place. And so one um, place that they like hid a portal into Tomorrowland was beneath the Eiffel Tower where there's like this rocket to get there. Um, I mean, I guess there's really not that much to it, um, but it does. And, and then I don't know if you got the whole part about how recruitment works, which is so like Athena is a recruiter and presumably she identifies the young Frank character, like not only by his inventiveness, but his optimism early on in the movie. That whole and I think we can wonder whether that whole inventor's contest was basically just like a, a, a system for recruiting young. Kids. Right, right. And there, actually, this is kind of thematic um, as, as much as plot-related, but th- that starts to touch on something from Brad Bird's The Incredibles, which is his kind of libertarian philosophy. It's less overt here than right. it was in The Incredibles, but there is this sense of the elect, these people, these extra special, creative, hopeful people that have to be rounded up and kind of put in a special place where they can help the rest of us. You know, I mean, it's 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 it's, a, it's the kind of philosophy that if you pushed it, extrapolated it to, it, to its extreme, is kind of... Uh, elitist and exclusionary. Yeah, people always bring up Ayn Rand. I mean, this movie, like The Incredibles, has gotten accused of being Randian a lot, which I think is just really wrong. I mean, first of all, it doesn't match Brad Bird's actual politics at all. He, He describes himself as a centrist, and I think that it's true that he thinks that some regulations go too far. Like, there's the whole tort reform plot element in The Incredibles where it's like unnecessary lawsuits that, um, are one of the factors that keep the Incredibles from being able to do what what they want to do. Litigation, always a favorite villain in children's movies, right? Right. I still find, I mean, I don't, I don't think you can ascribe any, you know, consistent political philosophy to either of those two movies. But I think that something about the very end, and here I'm skipping to the last image of the movie, mm-hmm. which is a hopeful one. It's that same wheat field that Casey saw herself in when she first touched the Tomorrowland pin. And a bunch of recruits, a bunch of right. hopeful people from around the world have have appeared there basically because they've you know had the equivalent of the pin experience. In fact, I think they all got pins, right? Don't you right. see a moment yeah, where yeah. they all get pins, including the ballerina? I love that moment where it's like tied to her toe shoe ribbon, and so so they're all in the field staring at Tomorrowland, and the idea is like we are the new army, 
army is maybe too violent a word, but we're yeah. like the the inventors of the future who will turn this place around. Right. I don't know. I guess th- th- to me that didn't ring. I-, I couldn't. I couldn't go with the hopefulness of that last scene. There was something about it that left a strange taste in my mouth. That was kind of up with people, cultish in some way, and I'm not even sure what it was a cult of. But uh, but it wasn't an ending that left me feeling warm and fuzzy. I don't know. I guess it was supposed to, or is it supposed to have a little bit of a tinny ring? No. I mean, I don't. I think this movie is pretty utopian, and I think it's certainly fair to. Uh, accuse it of being kind of naive. I I don't know. I found its overall message of stop all the doomsaying about global warming, and I think global warming is kind of the main target of this movie. That to like stop all the doomsaying and like let's talk more about how we can actually solve it was like a good message and like a good message for kids and adults. There's kind of a strange moment where there, there's an actual date for the end of the environmental end of the world. Right, it's right. 58 days away. I guess that's what's being counted down. On the countdown yeah. clock. So then let's we should just really briefly talk about how they actually do eventually route Hugh Laurie and turn things around and get Tomorrowland on the right track. Basically, they eventually figure out that the end of the world is actually being caused by the monitor. Like, it's not just being predicted by the monitor. It's being caused by it because the monitor is, like, it got stuck in a loop of self-fulfilling prophecy, basically, and started, like, broadcasting uh, cynicism back to Earth. And um, so they destroy it in a pretty spectacular action sequence. Um, And that uh, makes it so that they have kind of like they kind of reset the counter, I think, so that they have some chance of um, averting the end of the world, which I don't think is like explicitly environmental. But I don't think it's a coincidence that like the first thing you see through the portal when they're like sending off the new generation of dreamers is like a bunch of windmills. Right. Yeah. And well, and you also see when you when you get a flash forward into what will happen if nothing is done, you see Casey's house, one of the major locations of the movie, almost completely submerged in water. Right. Right. So there's a sense that basically the earth will be flooded in 58 days if they don't do something. Right. But at the end, when the uh, when the recruits are moving through the golden wheat field towards Tomorrowland, are they? Do they still have to do the work of aver- of getting through those fifty eight days and averting the disaster, or has that already happened? I'm sorry, I didn't get that. I yeah, I, I I'm having a little trouble remembering whether the counter is still there or not. But there's definitely, I think, basically, what's significant is that we've gone from a world where the future was really bad and everybody had given up to a. F- to a world where the future is still really bad, but everybody's trying to figure out a way to solve it. Right. Yeah. Which I guess, is like a pretty good place to end, I think. Like that is basically our situation. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just wish that the people who were headed toward Tomorrowland to solve the problems were characters that we knew and not these sort of, I don't know, to me, kind of Coke commercial, yeah. you know, ra- random roundup of good looking young hopefuls. I definitely thought of the, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Yeah. It's like they needed that. to hold hands and start singing. What about the performances? I mean, George Clooney, I think, is is good when he's there, but I mm-hmm. almost feel like his name is above the title in order to get people into the movie. Yeah. I, would, I would hardly call this a George Clooney movie. No. It feels almost more like one of those, I mean, in terms of the kid, young woman having an adventure, it's almost like one of those Disney live action movies from the 60s, like the computer wore tennis shoes or something. I don't know if you remember any of those movies where Kurt Russell would often be like the young, hopeful kid trying to solve some kind of technological problem. Um, That's almost what it harks back to in its story form. And then George Clooney is sort of there to lend a little bit of movie star gravitas. Yeah, his character kind of reminded, to me, he gave kind of like a classic Harrison Ford 70s or 80s performance where he's like the reluctant hero, like the solo character or even Indiana Jones kind of starts off right like dragged that. into the action against his will kind right, of thing right 
Um, so yeah, I thought he was really good. I, I mean, I thought the girl who played Athena was fantastic. And it was sometimes hard to tell exactly how much of her performance was actually CGI. Like there's this really cool sequence at the end where she's uh, dying, which we haven't even talked about. But um, and uh, sh- her what she's saying, kind of the uh, the sound that comes out of her loses sync with her mouth. Right. And it makes for this really it's eerie so, and it's, effect. And it's sort of a HAL 9000 effect from right. 2001 as well, where she says, well, pretty soon my operating instructions are going to kick in or something like that. My last yeah. recorded last words. And, and that's an eerie moment. But there's also a creepiness to that moment, because as you say, it's not only a May-December romance, like grizzled George Clooney holding this little 14-year-old girl in his arms, but it's a it's a human human robot romance, yeah. right? It's a, it's a strange movie death, but it's one of those sacrificial movie deaths where you know she she basically gives herself in order that right. the plan will work. And to use herself as a bomb, I, I don't know. I just loved the weirdness of of this movie, and yeah, I found that death like legitimately sweet and affecting. It kind of reminded me of like Ex Machina, which people are really really taken with partly for giving a vision of like a robot character who is female and like arguably pretty sympathetic but we're uncomfortable with that relationship and i thought this movie like did the most of that as well without taking itself so seriously and being a lot of fun. Yeah, I think you're right that the Athena character and the way she's used is one of the most original things about the movie and, and she's one of the most identifiable and, and likable characters in the movie. Casey, to me, was kind of a snore and we just spent a lot of time on screen with her for a character who is so one-dimensional. I mean, it's a nice dimension. She's very hopeful. She can't be put down. But even the little flashback of her as a baby looking up at the stars with Tim McGraw and a very misused Judy Greer. Talk about people uh-huh. who get a short role. She's in it yeah. for one minute. And her looking up at the stars and kind of lisping about the beauty of the stars. I mean, that to me, that was a little bit saccharine Disney. Well, and- but then we get that moment as a setup for George Clooney to interrupt and be like, oh, God, really? Right. Yeah, so, right, like, the right, movie right. goes along with it. I mean, Brad Bird it, is well aware, I think. He's obviously he's somebody who's thought deeply about yeah. Disney and about animation and about the history of hopefulness in the 20th century. And all of that thought goes into this movie. But I'm not quite sure that the conclusion that he comes to is really any different than, you know, any Disney movie of the past. Yeah, I don't, but why does it need to be? Is that what you're right? Thinking? I think I think that I don't know. I found it. It's true that um, this kind of the children are the future message is not an original one, but it's one that I felt like I haven't seen so much lately. Like it felt fresh to me just within today's climate, which is kind of how the movie frames itself too, as being like the kind of uh, optimist kind of shining star among all these kind of dark movies. Yeah, I guess I, I kept wishing that Thomas Robinson, the kid who played young George Clooney, would somehow come back, that the, the overlapping time frames would work in such a way, like maybe this could have been the death sequence, you know, that he would have been his young self, so it wouldn't be so creepy that he, right. was, he was with her or something. But I, I felt like there was a, yeah, there were a bunch of abandoned stories toward the beginning, and then the stories that we ended up focusing on were maybe the least interesting ones. And then at the end, you know, with the death of Athena the robot, we remember that there was this teen romance blossoming at the 1964 World's Fair that was tragically cut short by Casey's interruption. Yeah, it's it's funny. Uh, most people seem to feel a lot more like you. I guess I like I really, really loved this movie. It's maybe my favorite movie I saw this year, but almost no one agrees with me, I think. I'm very curious because, yeah, so far the critical response has been pretty tepid. I wonder what the popular response will be and what the kid response will be, you know, right. and uh, whether this will end up being a family movie that people flock to or whether it's a little bit too strange and, and offbeat for the popular Disney audience. Would you recommend that people see it? Uh, I guess this is, I'm on the fence with this one. I mean, I guess if you're a big Brad Bird fan and you're 
Yeah, yeah, I would recognize. I would recommend. Same thing with Mad Max Fury Road. Like I'm not falling at its right. feet, but it has tons of interesting design details, as you say. It looks beautiful. It's carefully thought through. It's original. You know, it's 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 almost visionary. This movie, but that right. sounds like a compliment, and I don't necessarily mean it as one. Well. It's kind of like whacked out crackpot visionary, and uh, and that alone, I think, makes it worth seeing. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I will say about this is that I also just really hope it does well. This is something we've talked about a lot because it was a big gamble for Disney to do this like kind of startlingly original movie and so if it doesn't do well and it seems like it is going to do pretty well but if it doesn't do well then we're unlikely to get more movies like this then you know disney will just keep remaking or doing like live action versions of fairy tales that it's already uh yeah well in that case yes i endorse it i send everybody there so that (laughs) disney will make more movies that are this weird but hopefully maybe a little bit more successful narratively all right well forrest thanks so much for coming in and defending and standing up for brad bird's tomorrowland uh thanks for having me our producer is joel meyer the executive producer of slate podcasts is andy bowers and the slate spoiler special podcast is part of the panoply network you can learn more about the other podcasts on panoply at itunes.com slash panoply for slate.com i'm dana stevens I'm Margaret Lyons. Join me, Matt Dollarsites, and Gazelle Amami on this week's episode of the Vulture TV podcast, where we talk about the Mad Men series finale, Person to Person. The kissing, the crying, the Coca-Cola. You can subscribe to the Vulture TV podcast at itunes.com slash panoply. Panoply.